Start with the set aside prayer. God, please set aside everything I think I know about you, God, the steps recovery, what's best for me, what's best for others. Especially help me let go of all my old ideas so I can live on your truth. Heavenly Father, have grace and mercy on me. Help me to glorify you today by carrying your message. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, for those uh, listening on the podcast, uh, I went and edited the site. When we, when we started recording in 17, we had three different meetings and three parts of the book. And the guy who set the site set it up with Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday, which is kind of confusing. So I went through and I edited it, and they're all Saturday from 370 down to 43. And then there's a whole bunch of other talks after that, some labeled Saturday, Sunday, Wednesday. Uh, there's tags at the bottom of the episode page for anything you want to listen to, and there's a blank spot where you can uh, put in any topic, and um, you can do full archives and just go through the whole thing. So uh, there's a lot of information on there. I think it's helped somebody. It's helped me. Uh, today we're on There is a Solution, and um, we got to page 19, and they were talking about what kind of illness this is, and it causes annihilation of all things worthwhile in life. It causes uh, issues with uh, people we love and everybody we come and cross with, and that the, the ex-problem drinker, somebody who has recovered, can give us, can win our confidence. And so that's about, that's what the deal is for you to have recovered and then be able to carry the message to somebody else. And recovered is where you're not dominated by the obsession to drink. You have a power in your life called God and you're seeking him when you feel disturbed rather than alcohol or drugs. And you know when you seek him that it'll work. You have trust in God, true faith. We start with belief in alcoholism in the big book, but we end up with trust and faith. And remember, it says if we're going to uh, be free of fear and we're going to have any kind of life, we have to live on a different basis, trusting and relying upon God. And then there is a solution. They're getting us to those issues, but they're still going to focus on what's wrong with us. And they do say that when we're to work with the new person on the bottom of page 18, it says our deportment when we approach somebody should show the new prospect that I have a real answer. And so that's why it's important to work the steps and have a message and be able to get, remember you can't give something away if you don't have it. We covered page 164 uh, on Wednesday. We want a no holier-than-thou attitude. No attitude of holier-than-thou. We're not better than anybody else who comes in. We're all alcoholics. We all have a common problem. The only difference is that some of us have been completely defeated and have uh, sought God and taken the actions to have a relationship with God. But that doesn't last forever. You have to keep doing it, right? And so some people just can't see the truth about their situation. They can't see that they're either 
going to go on to alcoholic death or live a spiritual life. They think there's a third door, or they can see the truth, but only for a short time. Some people say that God will show us the truth, but that to sustain the truth, to continue to see it, we have to take the actions of the steps. We have to find somebody, work with them, go through this book. And it says uh, we have a sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, but I think there are plenty of fees to pay to get here. Um, no access to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. I used to lecture people and they would, they'd never come back and talk to me. Uh, I don't do it anymore, but uh, I'm just teasing, but we don't want to lecture people because that won't help them. Uh, you could tell somebody that they're a mess and you can see that their life's a mess and you can see that the problems they have, but it won't help you telling them that. It'll only help them if they can see it. And you might help them to see it. You might ask them questions, which is different than lecturing. And it says, after such an approach, many take up their beds and walk again. And that's from scripture, uh, the book of John. And it says, elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. Now we celebrate periods of not drinking at the meetings and we call them birthdays, but it's just the beginning, really. If you stop drinking, but you're not practicing the principles in your home's occupation affairs, what good is it? And also, if you're just not drinking, but you don't have any uh, spiritual solution, you're still gonna be in conflict with everybody and everything, and you're still gonna be angry and fearful, and you're still gonna make bad decisions. Anybody ever do that? And have shame and guilt. And so we don't want to do that anymore. Now, we're not going to get perfect. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm close, but I'm not there. And, but we, we have a different, our attitude and outlook on life has changed. And so we're going to read about that in a few pages. So I thought these pages are really very powerful. And then, he's, and then they said, uh, the next paragraph, many could recover if they had the opportunity we have enjoyed. How then shall we present that which has been so freely given us? So they're going to give a testimony. This is a testament, this book. If they don't ask your opinion of it. They don't care if you like it or you don't. I hear a lot, you know, I'm doing a Roman study and um, I have breakfast with some of the guys from the church and a lot of people don't like Paul. But I don't think at the beginning of Paul's letters he said, now I hope you'll like me. You get it? It's not a question of liking. He's giving his testimony through the power of the Holy Spirit. They're giving their testimony of what God has done for them and how they were able to achieve a recovered state from a hopeless condition of mind and body. So this book is a testimony. And AA doesn't ask if you like the steps or if you want to do them. Do you like the book? Some people don't like the book. They don't like the language or the words. You know how it is. It's alcoholism. But they're going to show you their combined experience. They're going to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. And then they're going to show us the solution. And then they're going to show us how we get that solution. So for me, this book was life-saving. It's it's, the book is not a, a treasure. The book's a treasure map. It's a map to God. 
It should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with a drinking problem. Now notice they don't say alcoholic. Wives, employers, human beings, church members. We're all self-centered. We all suffer from self-centeredness. The only difference between us and them is we're an extreme example of it. Any extreme examples of self-will in the room? I see a few. Uh, and I was, but the problem with me having an extreme self-will and living on it is that when my emotions build up, I seek a release. And the solution that I seek, I can't control how much I drink or use. And then my life spirals quickly. And then I sober up and then I'm still separated from God with the spiritual illness. And then the emotions build up, you get the picture. And so that's the problem for us. Other people could just stay angry and upset, resentful, uh, but they're not drinking. They're still miserable, a lot of them, if you're in self. But uh, if, you're, if you have concern with the drinking problem, just as the alcoholic, and remember, they, uh, they said in the original edition, carry this message to others, especially alcoholics. Th this, uh, the principles here are the principles outlined in the New Testament on how to uh, progress in obedience to Christ and God and how to grow in God's character. And if you do that, you're gonna, you'll have gifts. You'll see gifts in your life and you'll feel better. And so uh, the Bible tells us how to be and the big book tells me how to, how to do that. And so it's, I find that, you know, this, this uh, there's a review of the big book in Amazon. It says uh, by Algis Huxley, and he says, uh, in 100 years, everyone will be studying this book. I'm not sure if that's true, but the problem with this book and, uh, is that this book is written for desperate people. It's not written for alcoholics, per se. It's written for desperate alcoholics people who see no other way out and because if you're not desperate you're not going to do it and so the people that they worked with in the beginning were desperate they were at the end of the line now there are a lot of people that they met that were at the end of the line but they weren't desperate so they moved on to the next one because unless you have the gift of desperation you're not going to be willing and um, on page 28, I'm getting ahead, I'm going to give you a preview. It says, uh, uh, how did they escape from this terrible dilemma? And it says, we in turn sought the same escape with all the desperation of a drowning man. Now, I still remember when I used to go to uh, the beach when I was a kid, and I'd get in the undertow a little bit, and it would drag me under. That was pretty scary. And if somebody gave me a hand, I would, I'd get up. I grab it. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. And so when you come in here, we give flimsy reed to people. And when they grab it and they do the work and they uh, progress in working the steps, it becomes the hand of God. And when you come in, you don't have to know who God is or what it is. You just need to know you need a power greater than yourself. It says a new line is life has been given us, or if you prefer, designed for living that really works. 
And so uh, if you don't have a design for living that works, they say, try this. We're going to give you our testimony. And then they're going to talk about there's discussion in matters medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We are aware that these matters are, from their very nature, controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. Wouldn't that be great? But you've got to remember they're writing the alcoholics. <laughs> so of course there's going to be contention or argument because that's the way we are. We, we have to see it. If we don't like the way we see it, then we don't like it. But we change. But to me, uh, this book has such spiritual truth that the more you study it, the more truth you see. And it's like scripture. I'm not saying that this is the same as scripture, but I'm saying it's similar. It says, we shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. Now here's a key line. Most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and a respect for their opinions or attitudes which make us more useful to others. Now there's a lot in that line. And what it says is, my tolerance of other people's shortcomings. Now, how do I see other people's shortcomings? You get it? I'm the one who decides that other people have shortcomings. So I have to be tolerant when I see some person's shortcomings that it's just the way they are in their viewpoints. And respect for their opinions, our attitudes, which make us more useful to others. And so right away they're presenting us with uh, what we're trying to do. We're trying to be useful to other people, especially alcoholics. And then it says, my very life as ex-problem drinkers depend upon my constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. So ask yourself, what are your constant thoughts? Are they of yourself or are they of others? Now most of the time, we're thinking of ourselves. We can't help it. But we learn as we work the steps and we live this that we don't want to do that too much. When we do that, we start feeling uneasy. We want to get back into and they're thinking of others, what I can pack into the stream of life, and how we may help meet their needs, not mine. And if I'm thinking of others and helping meet their needs, I feel better. It's just a guarantee. So if you're not feeling well, it says on page 84, uh, turn your thoughts away from yourself. Resolutely turn your thoughts to those you can help. And not just alcoholics, but anyone. You may have already asked yourself, why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking? Doubtless you're the curious. Now, the, the thing that they're going to talk about here is drinking and the effect of alcohol on you. But I was really ill before I drank. I was ill before I took the first drink. I had um, fear, constant fear of not being good enough, wanting approval. How were people seeing me? What could I do so I'd be okay? How could I manipulate the world so I would feel all right? And I made the world and other people my higher power from when I was a little kid. I didn't realize it till I, until I looked at the steps. Dallas, you're curious how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. There it is again. And they use the word recovered. I've done several podcasts and thoughts on it. 
um, where you don't want to be recovering. You want to be recovered. And then if you, if you live in steps 10 and 11, that's how you stay recovered. And recovered's fragile. It means that you're in fit spiritual condition. And so you have to get, you fall off the beam a lot and you have to get back on the beam. And so recovered is fragile, but it, it, you want to stay in that sphere with God. Uh, if you're an alcoholic and wants to get over, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? Have you ever met a new person who asked you, what do I have to do? I, I don't know that I occasionally, but most of them will tell you what they're going to do or what they're willing to do. And you might ask them and they say, no, no, I can't do that. Or, or Sandy Beach says, what do I have to do next? And that's really the book is about. What do I do next? What's the process? What's the actions? And, it, and how can you tell somebody's desperate? They ask you what do you have to do or you discuss it and then you ask them to do something and see if they do it. And then uh, see if they continue to do it. If they stop doing it, ask them why. And what's happening is they're getting less desperate. Their ego is rebuilding. And the purpose of, uh, uh, I believe, meetings is to remind myself I'm an alcoholic and what it was like when I came in. And I don't want to ever forget that. I don't want to ever forget how bad it was, so I'll keep seeking God. Was it bad for anybody who came in here? But we, for we can forget that. And and like right now, I'm remembering how bad it was. And that's good, because that's a gift. And we don't want to lose that gift. Is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically? So they're going to give me specific directions on what do I have to do. And they say that in the forward to the first edition. It said, we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless condition of mind and body. We're going to give specific directions on what we did. We shall tell you what we have done. Before we go in, but before they do that, they're going to summarize some points as we see them. They're trying to get us ready to want to do it, to see how we have no defense without God. And that's really what the first 43 pages of this book is about. The hopeless condition mind and body, the allergy of the body, but the obsession of the mind the inability to see the truth before we drink, and that we'll never be able to see that if we're not in a relationship with God. How many times have people said this? I could take it or leave it. Why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his, li his liquor. Why don't you try beer and wine? Lay off the hard stuff. His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. Anybody heard that? Yeah. I told people that when I was an intern, I was 25. <laughs> you keep drinking, you're going to die. And they'd say, oh, doctor, I'm done. I'm done. They had pancreatitis. They were really sick. And, and I'm done. I'm never going to drink again. And a month later, Saturday night, 3 in the morning, I have to go down to the ER, wheel him up again. And I saw that. I couldn't understand how people could do that because I didn't know anything about alcoholism. 
how people could continue to do stuff that was really killing them. But now we understand they had no power to do different. They weren't bad people. They just didn't have the power. They had the wrong manager. <clears throat> now these are commonplace observations on drinkers, which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see that these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours, right? The normal people can't understand this. They really don't. And I still remember on a cruise ship a while ago, they had the toast, the little toast, and it was a fancy cruise, and they had the little glass of something. Little thing, little glass. And they said, well, you could have it. I told them I don't drink. Oh, you can have it. I said, well, I could, but I don't know if there's enough booze on the ship. And I noticed they kind of moved their chairs a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, what's wrong with this guy? But I remember on one cruise, I didn't drink, and, and um, this couple, we had dinner with them several times, and the last night he told me that he hadn't been drinking for four days, you see? And so he was probably one of us, because normal people wouldn't think of that. And so I gave him a big book. I had a big book. I gave him a big book. So moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Normal people don't hide alcohol. No. OK? Just in case you're wondering if the new person's an alcoholic, ask them if they ever hid alcohol, because normal people don't do it. And normal people don't watch what other people are drinking. And they and they and they don't uh, they don't tell you how long it's been since they had their last drink, and then they're talking about hard drinkers. Now this is important. Joe and Charlie make the point that there are a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous who are hard drinkers. They may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. It's a sufficiently strong reason ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes imperative. This man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. And so when you see people come in the AA, a lot of them don't want to read the book, they don't want to work the steps, uh, they may, and they stay sober, they may be hard drinkers, I don't know. That's the point Joe and Charlie make, that not everybody who comes to AA is a real alcoholic. Some people can come here and they have sufficient reason to quit and they're able to. And what does that mean? They haven't lost the power of choice over alcohol. They still have the ability to choose whether to drink or not. Now they're going to tell you about the real alcoholic. Are there any real alcoholics in here? And I don't know, so they're trying to make the distinction to realize, for people to realize if you're a real alcoholic, you might want to read this book and do what's in it. Now I've heard people say, I don't know if it's absolutely true, but if you do everything in the chapter how it works and into action and continue to do it, you won't drink again. I don't know if that's true, but I think it's probably mostly true. You're living in steps uh, three through 11 all the time. It says, he may start off as a moderate drinker, he may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but here's the key. At some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor assumption once he starts to drink. 
Now, what's that called? That's the allergy of the body. That's the phenomenon of craving that when you put alcohol in your body, you want the second drink. Did anybody ever have that? Mm -hmm. Did anybody ever decide to drink and buy one of those little bottles? I think I ever bought a little bottle. Uh, you know how you know alcoholics on the plane? They buy two bottles, two of the little bottles. They won't give you three, but they'll buy two. And then they wave, uh, you know, for the uh, stewardess again. Lose all control once he starts to drink. And this is puzzling. It says, here may be puzzling you, his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Anybody do that? Now here's what I had. I did absurd, incredible, tragic things while thinking. You see, my thinking was really what caused my problem, but they're gonna get to that on the next page. He says he's really Dr. Jekyll Mikus, Mr. Hyde, he's seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. And people didn't understand that because they didn't understand our loss of control once we put alcohol in our body. So there's two things you have to remember, choice and control. And they're talking about control now. It says, let him drink for a day and he frequently becomes disgusting. He has a positive genius for getting tight exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He's often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. Now, I don't know if that's true. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. It says he possesses special ability, skills, and attitudes, has a promising career ahead of him, uses his gifts to build up something for himself and the family, and then pulls it down with a senseless series of sprees. And then he goes so intoxicated, he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early next uh, morning, he searches madly for the bottle he displaces. Anybody conceal liquor around the house? It says he may conceal liquor so his supply doesn't get away from him. And then he uses sedatives and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. And then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. This is towards the end. This is the spiral, the death spiral of alcoholism. And then he begins to appear at hospitals and sanitariums. Remember, this was written in 1938, 39, and um, they didn't know what to do with us. There was no big book, there was no treatment. And also, the economy was really bad. A lot of people still, we still hadn't recovered from the depression. A lot of people were still out of work, and it was really a tough time, still in the 30s. It's not a true it's not by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, but this description should identify him roughly. So now they're going to ask the question, why do we behave like this? And they're getting us ready for the famous paragraph on page 24, which we probably won't get to today. I've been babbling too much. If hundreds of experiences have showed him that one drink meets another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, Anybody recognize that? Why does he take the first drink? That's the question. Why, when it's caused us so much problems, why would we take the first drink? Now, the real reason that we do that is they don't really tell us on page 60. They don't talk about our selfishness or our self-centeredness, which is the spiritual illness, until 
we get to step three. But they're talking us now, why can't we stay sober? Why can't we live sober in the now? Why can't he stay in the water wagon? What has become of common sense and willpower that he still sometimes display with respect to other matters? Did anybody ever say, I'm not going to drink today? And, and then you could do a lie detector test when alcoholics who say that, and they pass it. And then two hours later, they're in, they're, they've got, they're in the liquor store. And so people don't understand that. There's something that happens to our mind, and we're going to talk about that in the next couple paragraphs. Perhaps there'll never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. Because a real alcoholic cannot not take the first drink. Everybody agree with that? If you're a real alcoholic, you cannot keep from taking the first drink. You have no defense against it without God. And that's what they end up on page 43. And then on 44, they start talking about God. And we agnostics. And it says, while we stay away from it, we may react uh, like other men. But once we put it into our body, something happens which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. Remember, this was the, the, that's why they started the big book with doctor's opinion, because he saw it when he worked at Towns Hospital. He saw the phenomena craving. He explained to Bill W. why he couldn't just take one drink, because he reacted differently. He has an allergy to alcohol, and we have a different reaction to it. And nobody really knows why. They talk about the metabolic pathways. Who cares? Knowing why won't treat it. We have to know what the solution is. And here it is. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink. So does everybody agree it's a good idea not to take the first drink? Great idea. Great idea. And we can all agree with that right now. It's uh, five of 10. But then how do we sustain that all through the day? and the next day and the rest of our lives, thereby setting the terrible cycle of motion. Therefore, the main problem the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than the body. They're really not going to talk about the body anymore. And after page 43, they're not going to talk about alcohol anymore. <coughs> if you ask him why I started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of 100 alibis. So the problem centers in our mind. There's something wrong with our mind. And what is it? What is wrong with our minds that we learned when we drank the first time alcohol did something for us that we could not do for ourselves? It changed the way we felt. It changed our, our view of reality. If you read later the promises that I read at most meetings on 83 and 84, those are the things alcohol did for me became a very powerful thing. If my emotions were a certain way, I, I knew if I drank, I would change that. It would make the world look different. Now that means, in the beginning, that alcohol started to have power over you. Because some part of your mind understood that if you feel a certain way, if you take alcohol, it'll fix that. Now it may not have been conscious, but over time, it became more damaged. And Father Bill W. says that there's a part of our mind that's damaged, and that when it's triggered, we can't say no to it. 
And so it's, the, it's living sober. It's the things that in our emotions that build up that trigger this part of our brain to say, you need a drink. Now, once that part of the brain is triggered, we don't have any power to stop it. And the only power that can stop it is God. And so uh, that's why alcohol has so much power over us. It's in our mind. It's what it's going to do for us. Now, why, if you know it's bad for you, and you absolutely never want to take the first drink, why do you do it if you know it's bad? Because right before you drink or on the way to the liquor store, you can only think about what's going to do for you, not to you. Because this mind has been damaged and it's triggered. And you don't want to come between an alcoholic and his first drink because it's not pretty. Because that's, that's, our mind has told us that's what is going to fix our way of life living self-centered, separated from God. And so we'll get to uh, just, the, if you look at your book, you turn the page, you see squiggly writing on page 24, squiggly writing on page 25. So they're getting ready to show us on page 24 that we will never have a defense against the first drink. And then they're going to show us the solution on page 25. And then they're going to, in this chapter, they're going to take us to Roland Hazard and Dr. Young and where we got the solution from. And then they're going to talk about how we establish this relationship with God that is the solution. And then more about alcoholism in the next chapter is how we have this queer mental twist right before we take the first drink. And that if you're an alcoholic, you're not going to be able to live without taking the first drink. So why do we look down in AA, quote, look down on people who go out and drink again? Well, they're just alcoholics. They have no defense. They're not bad people. And so uh, then they're going to get to we agnostics, which how, is there a power? Are you willing to believe that there's a power that can fix this? And then they'll start with how it works in step three, making the decision to let God run your life, because me running my life always leads me to back to drinking. And then the steps so that we enter the world of the spirit with God and he's the center of our world and we're close to him. And then how do we stay there so we don't get separated? So that's how it's kind of laid out. I hope this was helpful. Thanks, everybody.